Welcome to the Business 42 podcast. Today's episode is with New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of String Theory, the man himself, Dr. Michio Kaku. We talk about everything from religion, psychedelics, AI, and many other things. Now, I wanted to push the man, but out of respect, I held myself back a little. It may come across a bit combative, but I can assure you we both had a lot of fun. So here it is, Dr. Michio Kaku. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Is 42 podcast. I go by the name of Desh, and I have a special guest in today in the studio. Welcome, Dr. Michio Kaku. Glad to be on. Fantastic. Um, I've, uh, I think, uh, among many thousands of people, uh, at least in Australia and New Zealand, been following your uh, scientific endeavors for quite a while. Um, and it's it's been interesting to see how you uh, you know tackle science in the media in the mainstream. Um, so I've got a lot of things I want to talk about, but you know I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep it a uh, bit different. So it's not the stuff you can find on YouTube. So <laughs> um, look, I I I want to ask you um, you know there's there's some people um, within the physics community who think uh, string theory is somewhat irrelevant. I saw a white paper uh, by um, a scientist by the name of Eva Silverstein from Cornell University, and the title of the paper was The Dangerous Irrelevance of String Theory. Now, the paper itself is not a takedown of the string of string theory, but it's just, uh, you know, sort of adding to sort of a, apparent growing concerns over uh, string theory and its place in, in, in science today. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, you know, just because they want it to be elegant, that doesn't mean the universe agrees. What do you have to say to people who are critics of string theory? Well, I think it's a good thing because truth comes out of, inc out of debate with incorrect ideas. And that is the lifeblood of science. And so we want to have as much controversy as we can. However, that controversy has to be learned. That is, we don't want someone to simply say, I don't like that theory because it doesn't feel right. You have to look at the mathematics. You have to look at the content. And unfortunately, most of the people who criticize string theory are clueless about what string theory is. For example, there is a famous Nobel Prize winner from Harvard who criticized string theory, was perhaps the leading critic of string theory. And he published a picture of two strings colliding in his book. And the caption of the picture was, this is the sum total of everything I know about string theory. So I said to myself, well, that's silly. I mean, he's criticizing the string theory by saying that this one little picture is the entirety of his knowledge about string theory. I would have hoped that the critics of the theory would propose a counter theory. However, how many counter theories have been proposed to string theory? And the answer is zero. There are no competitors to string theory. Now, some people, in all fairness, come up to me and say, Professor, maybe I don't like string theory. Give me an alternative. Give me plan B. Give me a, 
another alternative. And I tell them, there is none. If you want to create your own theory of gravity and all fundamental forces, by all means, do so. Win the Nobel Prize. Be declared to be the next Einstein. But don't simply bellyache and simply say, I don't like this theory because it doesn't feel right. So I think that correctness arises from struggle with incorrect ideas, but it has to be a learned debate. We can't debate ignorance. Well, one position that simply says, I don't like this theory, is not a tenable scientific argument. Right. Um, so from moving on from the, the arguments against string theory, uh, there's plenty of you can find out what string theory is about. You've explained it, it, it so often, and I've been traveling with you for the last few days, and you know, it's like almost everyone is like, you know, I know you've already answered this, but let me ask you what string theory is. So I'm not going to ask you what string theory is. But I've been trying to you know, wrap my head around what's the difference between uh, super string theory that you propose versus what they one would call string theory. Is it the same, or is there two different uh, uh, versions? Well, they're basically the same thing. Right. Um, you see, symmetry, we now realize, is not just a beautiful thing, right. but it's actually the key to the entire universe. Symmetry. We have a theory of almost everything. The theory of almost everything is called the standard model. It's rather ugly, but it works. It describes all known phenomenon from the inside of a proton all the way out to the Big Bang, except for gravity. So the standard model, what makes it work? We now realize that what makes it work is a symmetry. It has a symmetry that turns quarks into electrons and electrons into quarks, like a shell game. Think of a, um, an ice crystal. An ice crystal has a symmetry such that if you rotate an ice crystal, it rotates into itself again. It has a symmetry. So the same thing with the theory of almost everything. You rotate the theory, the quarks turn into electrons, the electrons turn into quarks, and the theory remains the same, just like an ice crystal. Now, what we want is an ice crystal that contains all particles of the universe. We want the universe as an ice crystal, so that when you rotate this ice crystal, which represents the universe, it remains the same. So you need a symmetry, a super symmetry, a gigantic symmetry which rotates all subatomic particles into itself, and that is supersymmetry. Supersymmetry is the only symmetry known to science which can rotate all known subatomic particles into itself. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. It could be the final symmetry of the entire universe. It is the symmetry of the string. So, as, as anyone ever asked you, um, I remember when we uh, worked together in 2004 and we organized a tour, I invited an intelligent friend of mine, um, and he wasn't really into science per se. He enjoyed it, but uh, at the end he, ma he made a comment. Uh, he said, um, I asked him, how was the event? He said, uh, that was great, uh, you know, um, it was like... Uh, what people talk about when they're high. So that's what he thought. He thought because it was, uh, you know, pothead talk, uh, you know, because of questions and people generally ask you questions 
that sounds uh, super strange to people. So the question I want to ask you is, have you ever done any psychedelic drugs? Uh, the answer is no. no. And people sometimes say, well, don't you want to expand consciousness? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, but consciousness has to be based on reality. That is, you want to expand your understanding of reality. However, if you go into a direction of hallucination, it's infinite, it's unbounded. Now, there is one instance where a hallucination apparently led to a minor scientific discovery, and that's the discovery of benzene. If you look at the benzene molecule, the carbon bonds are in a circle. And according to lore, we don't know if it's true, the person who understood the structure of benzene had a dream about a snake, a snake biting its tail. And he was trying to figure out how can you possibly make a benzene molecule out of its carbon atoms. And he realized it's a circle. He didn't realize that. So he put it together and bingo, that gave us the benzene molecule. But in the history of science, to my knowledge, that is the one and only time where a hallucination led to deeper insights into reality. Einstein, Newton, to the best of our knowledge, did not take drugs. Drugs. So um, there's, a, there's a growing movement uh, recently. There's a resurgence. So in, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s, uh, or 60s really, um, there was uh, a, you know, there was a real large group of people in the West who took uh, you know, LSD and multiple drugs. And um, there was, you know, it, it was a thing, uh, a thing to do back then. But then, uh, you know, multiple administrations, you know, took a hard stance on drugs um, and it got, you know, completely changed. Um, but um, one particular drug from the 50s has had uh, relatively uh, low input from, you know, politicians when it comes to its research. Um, psilocybin, aka magic mushrooms, when the scientists uh, started doing research on it, they didn't use... LSD, because LSD had a really uh, terrible, uh, uh, you know, history attached to it, you know. But psilocybin, people didn't know what it was. Uh, and psilocybin research goes all the way back to, you know, 1950s. You know, Harvard ran, uh, you know, a, a range of, of studies. And from what I've read recently, there seemed to be a, a plethora of uh, neuroscientific research coming out. And there's, there seem to be a, uh, a rather promising outcomes with this particular hallucinogen uh, as a treatment for anxiety disorders, uh, depression, and various addictions. And with regards to addiction, especially like nicotine addiction, it seemed to have a very, very high rate of uh, people being removed from the addiction just from one uh, dose. It's not a... Uh, traditional uh, way of uh, giving somebody a pill, rather it's a controlled uh, environment and basically some, it's an it's a induced uh, trip. Um, how, do you, how do you feel about that? Like if there's actual medical benefits from a drug uh, that is a specific drug that doesn't have a, a, um, uh, the side effects of a nicotine or alcohol, do you think that science should go down that direction and research? Well, I wrote a book called 
the future of the mind, yes. where I had to look into the past. That is, what do we know about drugs, the human brain, and so on and so forth? And I came across MKUltra. MKUltra was a top-secret program financed by the CIA and different government agencies, whereby they would finance studies on psychics, paranormals, hypnotists, all sorts of psychedelic drugs. This was an exhaustive look at these um, so-called fringe areas of science because it was believed that the Russians were doing the same thing. For example, they would have a map of the ocean and they would ask a psychic to locate Soviet submarines. Can you find on a map using pins, can you pin the map and locate the position of Soviet submarines? Just hundreds of these tests. And you can Google it. You can look at the MKUltra studies yourself. Just Google MKUltra. Right <laughs> and you find that of all the hundreds of studies that they did, not a single reproducible study was of any use to the government. Hypnotism, talking to paranormal psychics, psychedelic drugs, they were, cons they were found to be unstable. That is, you could not get solid reproducible results from these things. And so the government basically uh, folded it up and said, um, nope, we can't find anything useful. Now, I'm a scientist. I realize that we have to look at different kinds of avenues, even though we may have a certain prejudice one way or the other. But psychedelic drugs are fair game, and there has been some research. But my personal point of view is several fold. First of all, we are in our infancy. Infancy in terms of just beginning to do controlled scientific experiments on these drugs. Because, of course, the reaction in the 70s and 80s against this kind of research was, was fierce. And many people in academia denounced the CIA for doing these cockamamie studies and wasting taxpayers' money and coming up with zero, absolutely zero reproducible results that could be of any use for the CIA. So, reproducible results, that's what we need. But we are in our infancy in terms of knowing about these things. That's the first thing. Second thing is that we are playing with fire. What separates us from the plants? Well, plants don't have muscles. They don't move around. But you see, there's also another difference between plants and animals. Animals have a pathway that allows them to reward certain behaviors, plants do not. Plants are not rewarded every time they move in a certain direction or do some kind of behavior. We do, and that governs our behavior. So if dopamine, which is one of the main, one of several, but one of the main uh, neurotransmitters involved in this reward cycle is tampered with, we gotta be very careful because it goes to the essence of what we are. And it turns out that, yes, the CIA also did experiments on our pleasure center. We have a pleasure center. It's called the nucleus accumbens. And by stimulating it, you can stimulate the dopamine cycle and induce behaviors in animals, reproducible behaviors. 
For example, if you put a mouse, connect the mouse to a telegraph key, and the telegraph key uh, stimulates the nucleus accumbens, many rats will hit that telegraph key until they die of starvation. They will do it literally to their death. Now, if you go up the evolutionary scale, look at dogs, look at porpoises, for example. Porpoises have been hooked up, but porpoises being more intelligent will actually stop, stop after a certain point, realizing that it will starve to death by stimulating its pleasure center. And then they go out and eat, and then they go back and they stimulate themselves some more. So we have to realize that we are animals. We too have the same dopamine cycle, I mean dopamine pathway, and dopamine is one of the common denominators of many of the drugs that are, are seen. And so you begin to realize, point number two, that you're playing with fire. Not only are we infants in terms of doing research that is reproducible, falsifiable, and testable, we're infants in this area, we're playing with the most basic mechanism of the human brain, and that is the reward cycle the dopamine cycle. So, and number three, the point is that coming out of the 60s and 70s, there's ample uh, firsthand data about people that became drug addicts. And what happened was you could talk to these people about the difference between drugs, but for them, it was just nothing but one big drugstore. Uh, they believed in recreational drugs and they would have uppers, downers, whatever suited their mood at, the, at that particular time. They would use this pharmacopoeia of drugs to go in one psychic direction or another just based on a whim. So you could tell them that certain drugs are addictive, certain drugs uh, give you the sense of megalomania when you are not God, but they think they are God. You could argue till you're blue in the face but it's of no use because for them, it's recreation. It's a fun thing and they, they get a kick out of it. So I think that we have to be very careful. I'd like to just add one thing there. Um, I was just doing a little bit of research. So psilocybin, the particular drug I, drug I was talking about, the, the drug uh, that's in uh, magic mushroom, uh, has no affinity for the dopamine D2 receptors. Um, and I also found this um, little chart that I wanted to show you real quick. Um, this is uh, showing the addictive nature of each of the drug types, which is what you are talking about. Obviously, for, for, for somebody who's addicted, this doesn't really mean anything. But basically, LSD and psilocybin and marijuana sort of sit on way back on the scale compared to you have heroin up here. Or um, alcohol. Or alcohol, there. exactly. Alcohol and yeah, all that sits right. over there. Okay, but all I'm saying is that A, we are children yes. when we do scientific studies on these things. You realize that potentially thousands, millions of people uh, can, can try some of these things for recreational purposes, and there's no study done on the long-term effects. I defy anyone to show me a long-term study about whether or not this is going to damage your brain, not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, but 20 years from now. And so I think we have to be very careful. And like I said, you're playing with fire. Not just dopamine, but there are neurotransmitters. All drugs work through neurotransmitters. That's why they affect the brain. Okay. They go through the blood-brain barrier, 
and they affect our neurotransmitters. That's how they work. There are several. There are about four or five neurotransmitters that we've looked at carefully, dopamine being the most famous and the most common, but there are others. Mm -hmm. So the point is that we have very little reproducible, testable information on these things. And third, as I mentioned, the implication for the average drug uh, user is he doesn't care at all. It's recreational for them. They have a, uh, a drugstore, a drugstore of different kinds of drugs because they feel that they need an upper, a downer, whatever, for that particular evening. And they couldn't care less about these studies that have been done. For them, it's like the moment. It's what makes them feel good at that present time. And I've had friends who became drug addicts, and you lose them. They're lost in the mist. And it's a waste of talent, and it's a waste of life. Now, I'm not saying that all drugs are bad. I'm just saying that we're children in terms of understanding them. We're playing with fire, and it's very dangerous to simply say this drug is better than that drug when we don't know for sure. Show me a study that shows that over many decades that this drug has no bad effects. There are none. I'm going to actually take this on uh, and actually send you some uh, uh, scientific paper. Uh, There's some some long-term studies uh, going all the way back to 1950s that few people have conducted up until recently. Um, With a very small base of, of, of subjects. These are not controlled experiments. Right. They're not done over a long period of time. And many of them are drug drug addicts where you don't know what the hell they were taking. Um, I mean, they're a walking (laughs) drugstore. All right. We're going to move on from this one. Um, So I want to talk about um, consciousness, um, which is, uh, see, the, the world, especially the developing world, is moving away from traditional religions. All the data shows, uh, you know, people are no longer part of traditional religions. People are somewhat spiritual, um, and some people, are, you know, are not. Um, but with that, there is a vacuum that's been created, and a whole heap of um, new age uh, philosophies have uh, taken hold of people. So um, there's people who believe in range of things that you know, back in the day would have considered to be part of a religion, uh, but they stand on their own. So, and they tend to use uh, consciousness as like a keyword. Now, I've got a lot of questions on this one, but I'm going to start off with um, something that um, I heard. There's a theory um, that uh, fuels some of these sort of new age beliefs, which is um, the missing link between the two theories you are trying to uh, you know, connect with string theory, the missing link is consciousness. Have you, have you heard of a, you know, people saying consciousness is a missing link uh, for you to uh, sort of uh, the theory of everything to be completed? Well, yeah, but you have to define your terms. Um, you realize that 20,000 papers, if you Google it, 20,000 right. papers have been written about consciousness. Right with no conclusion whatsoever. Never in the history of science have so many devoted so much to produce nothing, almost nothing, in terms of things that are reproducible. Now, let me say a few things about what you mentioned. Yes, it's true that in the developed nations, 
religion has less of a hold, but it still has a hold in terms of New Age philosophies or different kinds of philosophies. And the question is why? Part of it has to deal with the fact of evolution and genetics. There's no science gene. There's no gene that you can sequence in the human body where you say, ah, there's the science gene, okay? However, there is a gossip gene, I'm sure. There is a gene for jumping to conclusions. There is a gene for finding meaning when there is no meaning. That's what we do. We like to find meaning when sometimes there really is no meaning at all. We try to find irregularity when there is no irregularity. Let's do an experiment. Just look up in the sky and look at the clouds. What do you see in the clouds? Well, you see cartoon characters, you see boats, ships, you see airplanes, you see toys, all sorts of things in the clouds. Why? Because we are genetically hardwired to see things that are not there. Now, the point I'm raising is there's no science gene, but we have a yearning, a yearning for meaning. Maybe meaning exists, maybe meaning doesn't exist in what you're looking at, but we have a yearning for that. And that's why I think there's a God gene. I think we are genetically hardwired to believe in some kind of deity, some kind of meaningfulness to make sense of the universe. And for our evolution, that was actually a good thing. Because unless we do have a glue, like religion, that glues us together, we fight and we destroy each other. And I think, therefore, religion and science are, in some sense, two sides of the same coin. You see, when we emerged from the forest, we, we were apes that gradually became intelligent. But you see, intelligence is divisive. Intelligence is dangerous. Because if you have five people and they're all intelligent, what do you get? You get six different conclusions. And they could be mutually exclusive and they fight each other and they could kill each other. So as our ancestors gradually became intelligent millions of years ago over a long period of time, I'm sure that most tribes destroyed themselves because people would challenge the top dog. What holds animals together? The alpha male holds animals together. They don't have religion, they have alpha males. As we made the transition away from alpha males toward religion, we began to challenge the alpha male because we became intelligent. And what did they do? We would sabotage them, ambush the alpha male, take control, and what happened? Chaos. And these animals, our ancestors, those ancestors didn't survive. They didn't have progeny. So what you need is a check a check on intelligence. As we became intelligent over millions of years, we destroyed ourselves because intelligence is dangerous. So we need a check. And what was that check? Religion. Because you see, if, you're, if your top dog is no longer the top dog because you're smarter than him, you can ambush him, the tribe falls apart. So what you need is a top dog in the sky. And what is a top dog in the sky? God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't exist. God could very well exist. All I'm saying is that our ancestors probably became religious to hold the tribe together. 
Because without religion to hold the tribe together, we have a lot of bickering people that each think they're smarter than every other person, ambush each other, sabotage each other, and what do you get? Death and chaos. But some of the greatest uh, atrocities uh, in the world has been in the name of religion. Why? Because it's one tribe against the other tribe. You see, what religion does is it gives meaning to the tribe. Because what holds a tribe together? The Son of God. Your alpha male is not just an ordinary alpha male. Your alpha male is the son of the alpha male in the sky. Your alpha male is the Son of God. That gives legitimacy to the leader of your tribe. Now, what happens when you meet other tribes? Well, they are the other. They are the heathen. They don't believe in our alpha male. Therefore, they have to be slaughtered. And that's why, A, religion on one hand is cohesive. It holds the tribe together. B, it is antithetical to other tribes and will slaughter them because those tribes are not part of our tribe. So yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, in a modern world, I can, I can see that uh, you know, the ev evolutionary advantage at a certain point in a historical context, but as we move, as we all have access to the internet, as we all uh, have the capacity to be intelligent, uh, shouldn't reason be a better yardstick for us to come to terms with understanding the world? Shouldn't uh, we all sort of uh, abandon our uh, historical tribalism? Well, let me summarize again. I think tribalism was good for us when we were emerging from the forest because you have to check intelligence. Intelligence is dangerous. Intelligence is divisive. And so you need the son of God that is your alpha male, to give you meaning and to hold the tribe together. But the cost, the cost of that is that you slaughter the neighboring tribe yeah. because you're competing, competing for resources with the neighboring tribe. Now, with modern day technology, fast forward a few million years, okay? With modern day technology, abundance is a reality. We no longer have to fight for limited resources. Why do we have tribalism? Why, why did evolution prefer tribalism? Because it meant that your tribe had access to resources and could kill competing tribes because they too wanted your resources. Mm -hmm. But if we have science, science gives us an abundance of resources. And in principle, we don't have to fight anymore, but we do anyway, because this is genetics. Science is only 300 years old. A period of abundance is only less than 300, 150 years old, an era of abundance, okay? Our genes haven't changed for 100,000 years. We have the brain of a caveman, the brain of a cavewoman, except the difference is we have nuclear weapons. We have the capability of creating a paradise on the planet Earth if we felt like it, okay? So that's why we coexist with two competing trends. One hand, science, knowledge, technology, which can liberate us from all the wars of the past. But we still have this instinct of tribalism that is genetically hardwired. I'm sure there's a tribal gene up there in our genome, just like I think there's a God gene. There's probably a tribal gene and we coexist with two competing impulses. That's why I would hope that the science impulse wins, 
But remember, there's no gene for science. Mm -hmm. Science is an acquired taste. Science is only 300 years old. Our genome is hundreds of thousands of years old. But the scientific consensus that uh, you know, scientists, scientists come to, uh, it doesn't really matter what you think, right? Science, when it presents certain you know, data sets, whether you like it or not, just like you said earlier, you know, string theory, one might feel like it's not the right thing, uh, but if the science is accurate, whether you like it or not, it's factual. You, science doesn't care about your feelings. So all I'm, you know, like what I was trying to get to is as we move away from religion, uh, you know, wouldn't it be better for us to uh, uh, rather than having still room in, in, in a world where we still try to preserve this uh, ancient thinking that helped us in, in, at a certain point in our history, there's no point in the future for it. Shouldn't we be more focused on figuring out how reason and science get among more people? Well, I disagree with most scientists on this question. Right. Most scientists believe that technology has no ethical direction, that it's neutral, that a hammer is a hammer. It could be used to kill. It could be used to build. Um, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. It's neutral ethically. I disagree. I think that science does have an ethical direction. Because the internet spreads knowledge. It spreads nonsense, but mainly it spreads knowledge. Knowledge of how other people live. That, in turn, stimulates democracy. Because mm -hmm. you want to have a voice. Because you now have access to knowledge of other societies and other cultures. So that spreads democracy. And democracies do not war with other democracies. Why do we have wars? Well, many reasons. Among them, uh, fighting for resources fighting for wealth so that we can propagate our genes. So that's one reason why we have wars. But you see, wars are fought usually by kings, queens, emperors, and dictators, never between two democracies. Because mm -hmm. in a democracy, what do you want? You want to have a good life for your kids. You want to have peace, stability in your neighborhood. That's what most people want. But kings and queens, what do they want? Glory, power, resources, riches. And so that's why we have wars, because most wars are fought with kings, queens, emperors, and dictators. We have never had two major democracies war with each other. So I think as, as technology spreads, democracy will spread, and the fires of war will still have them, of course, but will be lessened as a consequence. And so I think that is a good thing. Now, how this unfolds, I don't know because each society has to decide for itself, democratically, how to divide up resources and how to make decisions collectively. Each society by themselves have to make that democratic decision. All I'm saying is that once we have that democracy, democracies do not war with each other. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a few um, wars that has happened between democracies. I just quickly looked it up. Um, the first Balkan war, uh, and there's uh, Israel war of independence against Lebanon. Um, well, if you look at these wars, most people point to the exception of the American Civil War. Right. But the American Civil War was fought with a slaveocracy. 
Yes. That was not a democracy uh, that, that at all, but a huge chunk of the population. There's a there's Turkish invasion of Cyprus, which happened in 1973. Uh, both countries had democratic governments back then. Well, yeah, but you have to realize that for the most part, democracy was stunted mm -hmm. and it was not allowed to, to flourish. You're still talking about an elite. Yes. A small handful of people yes. that want resources. They right. want power. Right. The average person just wants a good life exactly. for their kids. A real democracy is a democracy where you try to foster resources right. divided evenly among, among your people, right? Yes. These wars, you can point to them because they were not real democracies. Okay. They're democracies led by an elite that want power and access to resources. I want to come back to this, but before that, I, there was a question I wanted to ask. Oh, you. by the way, the very fact that you have to even Google something <laughs> like this of course, is proof of, points. of my point. <laughs> of course. If uh, this was commonplace, you wouldn't even have to Google I it. Can, I can tell you why I had to Google, because I guarantee the audience will comment with this information if we didn't Google it real quick. Um, but I wanted to ask a question. I want to come back to democracy very quickly. But I wanted to ask a question about, we, we spoke about religion, you know, you, you commented that, um, you know, you disagree with some of, the, some of your scientific colleagues. Um, do you believe in God? We have to be careful about defining our terms. Right. Okay. Uh, the, Einstein said there are at least two kinds of God. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very careful when you define God. First is the personal God. The God that you pray to, yes. the God that smites the Philistines, uh, the God that gives you that Christmas bicycle that you've always wanted, and you pray and pray to get that Christmas bicycle. Einstein did not believe in a personal God. I mean, why would the God that created the universe care what kind of uh, toy that you got for Christmas, right? So uh, Einstein thought that, well, God would have more important things to think about. Like what? like the structure of the universe itself. He believed in the God of Spinoza, the God of beauty, harmony, the God of simplicity. Uh, the universe could have been random. The universe could have been chaotic. It could have been messy. For example, when you do string theory, you realize that most universes that you come up with are unstable. The proton decays, atoms don't exist you have an ocean of neutrinos and electrons in most of these universes. So you begin to realize that our universe is very special because it is stable, it is beautiful, gorgeous, creates atoms while most of the other universes are unstable, disintegrate to a bunch of a, a mist of subatomic particles. Now, Galileo was asked these questions and Galileo's answer was very simple. That is, what is the purpose of science? The purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. What is the purpose of religion? The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. So in other words, science is about natural law, while religion is about ethics, about how to be a good person, how to obey uh, your, your elders, and how to be a nice person. Now, the problem occurs when people who are scientific pontificate about ethics, or when religious people pontificate about natural law. That's when we get into trouble. But you see, if you keep them separate, there's really no trouble at all. So Einstein didn't see any particular conflict.
Because, of course, all of us yearn to understand the nature of things and the nature of the world around us. He thought that he was like a, a little boy entering a library for the first time. And this library was huge, gigantic. All the knowledge of the universe contained in this library. And all he could do was open the volume one, page one, and read the first paragraph. While before him was this ocean of knowledge, beauty, simplicity, elegance. And that's how Einstein conceived of things. Not a personal God that smites the Philistine, kills your enemies, and rewards your friends, but a God that created this gigantic library, which is beautiful, gorgeous, and didn't have to be that way. So the long-winded way of answering, do you believe in God? So basically the answer is, you do not believe in a personal God, but possibly how Einstein... The God of Einstein. God right. of Einstein. Right. Okay. Um, so how do you find meaning in that? Well, some people want meaning given to them by some guru. Right. They join some kind of cults and they say to the guru, tell me, tell me what does it all mean? Right. Now my attitude is that's a cop out mm -hmm. because you find your own meaning. It's too easy to have meaning given to you on a platter. You have to struggle. You have to struggle with this question. You have to find your own meaning. And that's why I think that when people talk about the meaning of life, it's not, it's a journey. It's a process. It's not simply a sheet of paper where the meaning is 42 or the meaning is something uh, simple. You have to earn it. You have to struggle to create that meaning. You create your own meaning. So in some sense, the universe, I mean, the purpose of the universe is self-creation. You have to create your own meaning. So you mentioned earlier that um, science and religion can coexist, but not necessarily walk into each other's as long as you keep Bacteria, the domain separate. Right. So one yes. is for ethics and one is for natural So, um, So scientists like Richard Dawkins and philosophers and scientists like Sam Harris will strongly disagree with you because they've written books about how you can be more uh, without uh, religion, just purely understanding how science works. Well, let me say this. I am not an atheist. Right. I'm a scientist. And in science, we realize you cannot disprove a negative. Mm -hmm. For example, unicorns don't exist. Can you prove that statement? Well, unicorns don't exist everywhere we look, but maybe there's a unicorn someplace where we haven't looked yet. Therefore, you immediately see the problem. There's always places that you haven't looked, but the problem meaning that you cannot disprove a negative. So if you try to disprove the existence of God, which many atheists try to do by saying, no, no one's going to throw a thunderbolt at me right now. Ha, ha, ha. God doesn't exist, right? I've just insulted God and there's no thunderbolt from heaven. Well, but you see, maybe that thunderbolt will come another day or in a different way. You cannot disprove a negative. I think it's pointless. Now, I'll say this. A thousand years from now, people will have the same discussion about God <laughs> with the same conclusion, I don't know. Yeah, you see, a thousand years from now, they'll be arguing the same thing. I think uh, the, the, the argument... Uh, 
atheists make is not necessarily disproving a god. I mean, look, from from my point of view, uh, is I think it is not very difficult to come to a point where the the, the god of uh, Abrahamic religions in it is exactly described way that is unlikely that you, one can come to that conclusion a personal god without any attribution to an organized religion that may be another conversation but a god described in in most religions or gods described in uh, some eastern religions they can be uh, you know if you go through the religious texts you can come to the conclusion in that manner that is unlikely the problem is it's not really people having personal beliefs, it's when religion has a way of impacting not just the person who believes, it has a way of impacting uh, societal impact. It has a way of impacting policy, like America having, uh, you know, abortion debates uh, and, uh, you know, euthanasia debates. They all, uh, the opponent tend to be generally a religious opposition. That's where I think, uh, you know, some people, you know, Many people have issues with religion in that context. I don't think anyone has an issue with what you believe in your own your personal in your personal space. Well, I think we have to be careful not to set up a straw man right. and smash a straw man and say, "Ha! I've proven my point." Right. You see, there's something called the God Letter. Sure. It's been in the headlines recently, a letter written by Einstein himself in his own handwriting about God, and. It says that if you take a look at, for example, the Jewish religion, which he singles out in his letter, there's a lot of childishness mm -hmm. in that. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. I think the interpretations of many people was, was incorrect. Einstein said many times he's an agnostic. He doesn't know if God really does exist or really doesn't exist. He thinks there is a God of Spinoza, but he couldn't prove it. And so many people say that when, when Einstein wrote that there is no God, he simply meant there is no personal God of, of different religions like the Jewish religion, which you can say is a rather has many childish parables and stories that obviously violate uh, the known laws of physics. And so I think we have to be careful not to set up a straw man. Now, when the atheist point at different religions of the world, they can laugh all they want by showing that this God obviously violates this law of physics, that God violates that law of the physics, ha, 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 therefore they're all wrong. I think that's going too far. And I'll say something else. I'll say that what is the fire that animates theists, not atheists, but people who do believe in God? The anger, the fury that aggravates them is when they're provoked. That is, if you want to create a debate where there's no debate and antagonize people who are religious, the thing that antagonizes them the most is when someone says to them, your God, not my God, but your God does not exist and is a fiction. That antagonizes people. And so I think we have to be careful that when we talk about religion, we don't insult people. Mm -hmm. Because it's so easy to say that your stories, like a straw man, are so obviously incorrect, like whales, whales swallowing people. When was the last time a whale swallowed anybody, right? That you insult them. And people dig their heels in 
and it makes it worse. I'm all in favor of dialogue, but reason dialogue, not dialogue that says you're stupid, you believe in God, therefore you must be stupid. What's wrong with you, right? I don't believe that's the way to do it. I think the way to do it is either just leave it alone because science by itself will naturally decrease the necessity to pray to a God or talk about it, you know, in a reasoned, logical way, point by point, rather than, let's say, insulting people by saying that your parables are obviously silly. I agree. I think we're in agreement with regards to conversation is the key. Um, but uh, I, th I think where, it, where we in disagreement would be what role religion plays and continue to play. But moving on from that, I want to talk about um, this new realm of uh, meaning that people find in New Age um, religions. They're not necessarily religions. Uh, there are lots of um, pop uh, psychologists or people who claim to give you meaning, these gurus that's out there. Um, they tend to use you to explain things. Um, so I first came across a documentary in 2004 called What the Bleed Do We Know? Uh, which, when I first watched it, I was like, wow, this sounds amazing. It was talking about our uh, ability, the human consciousness and its ability to change uh, things around us. Uh, later, that spawned a, a, a cult-like following um, and uh, they used the word quantum so often that Back then, I, I thought, oh, maybe this is science. Um, they, they, they reference you at some point, I believe. And then later, there's been other documentaries, and there's a documentary called The Secret, which all talks about the same thing, our human ability to impact real life by sort of thinking about things and how we can um, you know, uh, bring abundance into life by thinking about it. There's a book called you know, Thinking and, Think and Grow Rich, so I'm curious to uh, hear from you as a you know, theoretical physicist who understand the quantum realm than a lot of these gurus. When people use some of your science to uh, then tell people that what human, humans can have, uh, the impact humans can have to the physical world just by thinking, how do you, what, what, what's your take out on that? Well, first, let me say that there's a lot of fake websites out there, right. uh, some of which say that I can prove the existence of God, which I cannot, and I think it is unprovable, in fact. And they quote me, but I have no control of it. I sent them an email saying, please remove that statement from your website. But then it goes to another website, and it starts all over again. But anyway, let's go to your main point. Yes. There is a debate in quantum mechanics. I teach quantum mechanics. Right. Uh, to first and second year graduate students, there is a debate which can be taken the wrong way. Right. And that is that observation, in some sense, determines existence, but not that you can determine existence, not that you can shape existence to your will, but existence itself does depend on a certain form of consciousness. Now, let me explain. Let's put a cat in a box. This is called Schrodinger's cat, and you're not allowed to open up the box. Before you open up the box, according to quantum mechanics, the cat can exist in all possible states, dead and alive simultaneously. That sounds weird, but hey, 
This is the way we do physics. Electrons can be here or there. It works for electrons. It's called transistors. This is how lasers work. This is how transistors work. Electrons can be two places at the same time. Now, how do you know, therefore, if the cat is dead or alive? Well, obviously, stupid, you open the box, right? But that requires an observation. Observations are done by conscious beings. So consciousness determines the existence of a cat by opening the box. Now, how do you know you exist? Well, you exist because someone looks at you. Therefore, someone looks at you, you look at the cat, and the cat exists. But who looks at that person? A third person looks at the second person, looks at the first person, looks at the cat. Well, you have this infinite staircase of observers observing everybody until you reach God or cosmic consciousness. Believe it or not, this is a valid form of quantum mechanics. It was proposed by Eugene Wigner, who happened to be one of the people who built the atomic bomb. And he wrote in his memoirs that, yes, he quoted from uh, Indian scripts. And he said that he does believe in a form of cosmic consciousness. The cosmic consciousness determines the existence of this cat. Okay? Also, John Wheeler, whose student was Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winner, also said that perhaps the Big Bang, perhaps the Big Bang was formed because someone looked at it. Now, that's one way to look at this problem. Of course, Einstein hated this. Einstein called this spooky action at a distance. He thought that the, he said, quote, the more successful quantum mechanics is, the sillier it looks. There's a second way to look at this, which is what I believe in. Most of my friends who are Nobel Prize winners also believe in this alternate approach. This alternate approach is even crazier than the first. The first approach simply requires cosmic consciousness. The second approach is even more bizarre, but it is what I believe, and that's many worlds. The universe splits in half. In one universe, the cat is dead. In another universe, the cat is alive. That's how you resolve all the paradoxes of quantum mechanics. And, as I said, Einstein hated all of this, but he was wrong. Why do we have transistors? Why do we have lasers? Why do we have the internet? Why do we have this conversation on the internet? The internet is made possible because of quantum mechanics. I mean, think about it for a moment. If Isaac Newton were alive, and you told Isaac Newton there's such a thing as a laser and a transistor, he would say, nonsense. There's only the three laws of motion. The universe is made of tiny little steel balls. You can't have electrons dancing in many places at the same time, but we do, and that's called a transistor. And that's why we're talking on the internet now. So that, that, that's fascinating. Um, so uh, what's Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? It simply says you cannot know for sure the location and the velocity of an electron. Inherent ambiguity within the laws of physics itself. Meaning that the electron is two places at the same time. Right. So this is what I'm... So when I... Uh, you know, listen to some of these gurus that use the word quantum. These are the things that they point out to explain how we as conscious being are having an impact on the material world. Because we look at something, thus it changes. Because two things can exist at the same time, or we don't know where things are, and, and we are the ones who are manipulating its existence. So when 
people uh, follow these kind of teachings, what is the best way for one to explain the science? Just play a video of you just talking about what you just did? Well, I think we have to be clear that quantum mechanics is bizarre. Right. It's strange, right. violates all common sense, but hey, it's real. It's what we call reality. But quantum mechanics does not allow you to reshape reality in your own image. Right. That's what some new age people want. All I'm saying is that there is a valid interpretation of quantum mechanics, the dominant one, right. the one that I teach, by the way. When I teach first-year and second-year quantum mechanics to grad students, this is what I teach, the Copenhagen interpretation, which says that observation determined existence. However, that doesn't mean that you can determine reality. That's different. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I There's do. a tremendous difference between those two sentences but people gloss it over. But my personal point of view is even more bizarre than either of the previous interpretations, and that is many worlds, mm -hmm. which of course gets us into string theory. Right. So string theory is a many worlds theory. So I want a, a similar thing. So uh, media tend to report science in sort of fantastical ways. Um, I don't know if you remember Toby's star, you know, the star that allegedly had a alien megastructure around it. You know, there was the hypothesis and, you know, it was reported everywhere. Everybody got really excited. Um, and now, obviously, we know it was dust. Well, we don't know for sure. It's still controversial. But anyway, go on. Well, uh, well I, I thought the scientists who studied that came out and uh, their, their final finding was they now strongly believe it was dust. They believe. Okay. They cannot prove. Right. But, but they, they themselves said so. Right. But they, they, they think it's highly unlikely it's an alien megastructure. Uh, yeah, I mean, in fact, all these interpretations are highly unlikely. Right. Because we've never seen anything like it before. So there's another thing, you know, I just, this just came out, uh, I think, yesterday. Uh, so some Harvard scientists believe that the cigar-shaped object that uh, went by Earth recently, uh, Oumuamua, is potentially an alien probe. I don't know if you remember this thing. Yeah, this, I remember. You remember what it looks like, right? Yeah. So it, they're saying it is, this is potentially an alien probe. Um, the, I, I, I worry when such fantastical claims come out and then they get proven to be incorrect. Um, will there be a backlash towards science from the public? Like, you know, you like, oh, yeah, you guys last said this was an alien megastructure. Now it's dust. You said this is an alien ship. Now we find out it's a type of, uh, you know, common object we didn't... I, I, my question is, some of these fantastical claims seem to be, in my mind, it's just, it's, it's not going to help science. It's just hurting science. No, I tend to take the opposite point of view. Right. You see, science is invisible in our society. Even though it's the engine of prosperity, every single aspect of our prosperity, the food we eat, the water that we drink, uh, all the benefits of modern science, uh, we take for granted. And this invisible, scientists are also invisible. You talk to the average person and you say, do you know a doctor? And they'll say, well, yeah, once in a while I visit my doctor. And then you say to them, uh, do you talk to a scientist? And they say, I've never, ever met a scientist in my life. I just see him on TV once in a while. And then you begin to realize that science is invisible in our society. Scientists are also invisible in our society. And if once in a while 
some cockamamie idea gets out there, it does stimulate people to think about these things. Because normally the average person spends all their time looking at the floor. <laughs> looking at the, what, I ask my students, what's so interesting about the floor? My students are always looking at the floor. And I say to myself, well, that's the average person. The average person spends a lifetime looking at the floor. And if once in a while they have to look up, look up, even if it's for some cockamamie idea, that's actually a rather, rather good thing. Because that is better than spending the rest of your life simply looking at the floor. Well, if Fortitude has, to, has anything to do with it, we're on a mission to uh, bring more scientific conversation to the mainstream. So if, if you keep doing what you're doing, uh, we're going to help get, we get your message out there. And I just want to say thank you for the fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing you speak uh, more and see more of your content come out. Uh, Professor Kaipo, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to This is 42's Guide to Find Meaning. We hope you enjoyed the latest episode. If you want more content, don't panic. You can head to thisis42.com. Until next time, take care.